goes off and the clock has started. I'm your announcer Graham and this is 20 minutes you'll never get back. I see Graham is now padding his script. Hey, all right. I am Doug Brazak and you're listening to 20 minutes you'll never get back. Although I suspect this episode may be a little bit longer than 20 minutes. As you heard on episode 16, there's just so much stuff to cover. So if you have an important uh, appointment in 20 minutes, uh, you might want to know you're going to be a little bit late. So thanks again for tuning in. And I also want to give a shout out to the listeners in Anchorage, Alaska and Washington, Virginia. Much appreciated, guys. But I really appreciate anybody who tunes in and listens. So thank you to everybody. Okay, you are currently listening to part two of Once Upon a Time in Disneyland. And if you haven't heard part one, then go back and listen to episode 16 so you can catch up because there was a lot of important stuff in there and I don't want you to miss out any of that. And then once you hear that, you can go back to this one and hear part two. So continuing from where we left off, um, you know, we talked about uh, Main Street and we talked about uh, Bear Country, the former Bear Country. And we're going to start off with Frontierland. I uh, Hopefully, I'll be able to get through Frontierland, uh, Adventureland, and man, if I'm lucky, we'll get uh, uh, Fantasyland in there as well. So let's uh, kick things off. We're going to go up Main Street, go through the hub, and uh, turn left there at the uh, fort, and we'll go into Frontierland. Frontierland was obviously one of the original lands when uh, Walt Disney opened up the park in 1955. And there was a ride that was there at opening. It was the Stagecoach Ride. Uh, and that was part of the original roster of Frontierland attractions. In 1956, with the addition of the Living Desert and, and other new scenery elements, the ride became the Rainbow Mountain Stagecoach Ride. Although most Disneyland guidebooks and brochures from 1956 through 1959 they continue to call it the Stagecoach Ride or just the Stagecoaches. The Stagecoach Ride was a great ride. It definitely hearkened the uh, travels of the Old West. Uh, some people were lucky you got to sit on the inside and others were lucky you got to sit on the outside. But your stagecoach was pulled by horses and you traveled through the living desert and going through all the animatronic animals and things that were out there. It was actually was, was a, a pretty cool ride. The ride closed forever in 1959 to make way for the construction of Nature's Wonderland, which included uh, Beaver Valley, Bear River, and the spectacular Cascade Peak. When Nature's Wonderland opened in 1960, there would only be two ways to travel around it, the mine train through Nature's Wonderland or the pack mules through Nature's Wonderland. The Stagecoach Ride is definitely one of Disney's iconic gone-but-not-forgotten attractions, kind of like the Monsanto House of the Future <laughs> we'll talk about, uh, I think, next week. Uh, for Disneyland's happiest homecoming on Earth 50th anniversary celebration, the park actually rolled out one of its old stagecoaches into the Big Thunder Ranch, also gone, uh, for the celebration. It had a blue and gold 50th anniversary emblem above the door. It wasn't a ride, but you could look at it. Another ride that's uh, no longer there actually was a ride that uh, had a name and some scenery. Then they added some more scenery and gave it a new name. And that's the Rainbow Caverns Mine Train, which then became the Mine Train through Nature's Wonderland. Now, the Rainbow Caverns Mine Train began operating in Disneyland's uh, new Living Desert area in 1956. 
The Living Desert also served as the entrance home for the stagecoaches we talked about, the Conestoga wagons, and the pack mules, all premiered uh, during the inaugural 1955 opening. The mine train through Nature's Wonderland opened in Disneyland in 1960, and it was part of that aforementioned, you like how I use the word aforementioned, uh, as part of the aforementioned expansion of the Rainbow Caverns mine train. Now, again, it was just the same train. They just added some track and added some scenery. All right, let's move on from there. The highlights of the journey were the Rainbow Caverns. Your train would enter a cave and go through these caverns of stalactites, stalagmites, and then you'd come across these beautiful giant waterfalls of multicolors, and there were music playing. You know, basically it was black light and a lot of uh, neon-colored paint bright lights, colored water, and music, and when you're 10 years old, that was actually pretty awesome. Yes, it was quite the sight to see until somebody in the train car next to you takes out their camera and pops off a couple of flash cubes and completely destroys the effect of the color and music and lights, and all you see is the infrastructure of a mountain. Thanks a lot, man. Uh, all in all, there were 204 animated animals in their natural habitat in nature's wonderland, and that was situated on a seven-acre site in Frontierland. Uh, it could be viewed from the mine train or the pack mules. The Disneyland Railroad passengers kind of had a view of it, of the desert, uh, until the track was rerouted uh, to get ready for the opening of It's a Small World. The mine train through Nature's Wonderland operated until January 2nd, 1977. In its final years, the attraction had been demoted from an E-ticket to a D-ticket. That sucks. That had to hurt. The time had come to replace a venerable mine train with a different kind of mine train, and you know which one I'm talking about. The big part of the mine train that was able to survive the demolition was the old Cascade Peak. That existed for quite a while. The waterfall was still pouring, and if you went by on the Mark Twain or the Columbia sailing ship, you could still see the waterfalls pouring into the Frontierland River. Some of the original track work from the mine train that went in front of Cascade Peak and the waterfalls was left in place. And it was actually rethemed to look like a rock slide had come crashing down to break up the track. And there was, they took one of the old trains and made it look like it had smashed into this uh, landslide that had come down from the waterfall. There's also one last vestige of the mine train you can still see. And that is as you cross by uh, Big Thunder Mountain, uh, there's a bridge where the train kind of comes around. If you look across the bridge over to the other side, there's a little pond there with some fish jumping out. And uh, that was part of the original Rainbow Caverns ride. So there you go. Cascade Peak and its waterfalls uh, continued through the summer of 1998. And then by the end of 1998, they turned off the water, got out the bulldozers and got rid of Cascade Peak. It was deemed uh, too unsafe because years of water damage had kind of taken its toll. So Cascade Peak and the Rainbow Caverns Mine Train, all gone. A couple other long-since rides were in actually the same area as the mine train. That's the Conestoga wagons and the pack mules. Now, the Conestoga wagons, they were basically like a, a covered wagon. They would take follow pretty much the same course as the stagecoach on the trail back through Nature's Wonderland there. And in September of 1959, the Conestoga wagons ended its run of a little more than four years. And that's when construction began on that nature's wonderland. And there just was no room for that. However, the mules did survive. But 
40 years later, you could once again find a Conestoga wagon in Disneyland, sort of. If you had been there, you may remember over there between Big Thunder uh, Railway and the Rivers of America, there was the McDonald's Conestoga Fry Wagon. That was one of the wagons they basically reformatted into a French fry food truck. I mean, food wagon. Well, that's just great. Now I want some French fries. Dang it. When Disneyland opened in July of 1955, the Mule Pack was one of the original attractions. And the attraction operated the same way as the stagecoach and the Conestoga wagons. The Mule Pack lasted less than a year with its original name and its kind of very modest setting. After that $2 million expansion I've mentioned a hundred times already, the original Mule Pack ride became the Rainbow Ridge Pack Mules in uh, June of 1956. Disneyland guests, they had to uh, cough up a top-tier ticket to ride on the mules. When Disneyland opened the e-ticket in June of 1959, that's what the Rainbow Ridge Pack Mules required. The pack mules weren't without their challenges. Quite often, the mules would stop for absolutely no apparent reason along the trail and just refuse to continue, despite the, uh, let's say, verbal encouragement by the mule skinner, as they were called. Also, it was quite a sight and sometimes quite disturbing when you're 10 years old and you're sitting on top of a mule that's not going anywhere, and the mule right in front of you decides now's the time it needed to relieve itself. Uh, plenty of shrieks and shouts and screams uh, when that event took place. Fun times. The pack mules ended their... Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I realize everybody poops, but <laughs> when you're sitting on a donkey and one unloads right in front of you, uh, it's horrifying. Anyway, back to the pack mules. They ended their tour of the uh, Nature's Wonderland in 1973. And that's when that area was replaced by Big Thunder Mountain Railroad in 1979 and Big Thunder Ranch in 1986. Now, among Disney parks worldwide, France, Japan, anywhere, the mule rides were unique to Disneyland in Anaheim. They were never duplicated in any other park. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say it's because, A, the mules would just stop walking for no apparent reason, and B, they would, uh, uh, you know, and then traumatize kids. So I'm guessing that's why. But those pack mules were unique to Disneyland. Another frontier attraction that has slipped into the memory banks is the Mike Fink keel boats, which premiered in Disneyland on December 25th, 1955, which was the park's first Christmas. The keel boats were a free-floating boat. That is, they were not on a track like the Columbia or the Mark Twain. <gasps> oh, no, have I given away too much information? Anyway, they were, uh, they were free-floating, and it basically looked like a, a small boat with a wood tent on it, if you will. And there was a Disneyland employee that had a big uh, keel rudder in the back, and basically it circled Tom Sawyer's Island like the, all the other boats did. But again, they were free-floating. Now, there were, uh, they, they usually operated in the summertime, but sometimes on, on busy weekends, they'd, they'd bring out the boats. There were two of them. There was the Gully Wumper and the Bertha May. The Gully Wumper and the Bertha May were actual boats that were used in the filming of the Davy Crockett programs, and they were quickly converted to have seats and two windows on each side. 
Now, the boats were replaced by higher capacity boats with three windows on each side because, you know, three windows is better than two. When it came to tickets, Mike Fink Keelboat's ride was actually a bargain compared to the other vessels on the river. For example, in 1972, Disneyland guests had the opportunity to circle Tom Sawyer Island for a sea ticket on the Mike Fink Keelboats. And in comparison, the Columbia Sailing Ship and the Mark Twain uh, and even the canoes all required a D ticket. So I'm telling you, Keelboats, it's a bargain. At the end of summer in 1994, the Mike Fink keelboats closed for the season. The keelboats never reopened through all of 1995. And then in March of 1996, the keelboats reappeared on the rivers of America. And then came what has just been called, quote, the accident. Around 5.30 p.m. on May 17, 1997, the gully wamper began rocking from side to side while on its regular routine trip around the island. The gully wamper tipped over, dunking a boatload of passengers into the rivers of America. Several guests were treated for minor injuries, and following the accident, the gully wamper was removed from the water for inspection. Neither the gully wamper nor the Bertha May operated for the rest of the season, and frankly, never again. All right, for the last part of our Frontierland tour, we're going to head back over to an area that uh, was bear country and then became critter country. And before all that, it was known as Indian Village. The first Indian Village at Disneyland opened in 1955 uh, in Frontierland, right on the shores of the rivers of America. Uh, it made sense to feature American Indians in Frontierland, uh, the relatively new medium of television, Westerns featuring cowboys and Indians were the big hit of the 50s. Indian Village represented many tribes, and they represented the culture and customs and arts of Native Americans. You could kind of wander among the teepees of the Plains Indians or an Iroquois birch bark longhouse and a cedar plank house and totem poles of the Indians of the Pacific Northwest. There was even an Indian burial ground. So, you know, obviously not legit. Uh, Disneyland employed a full-blooded Indian chief, Chief Whitehorse. His name was Truman Washington Daly. He was born in 1898, and he passed away in 1996. He was not just someone who looked apart. He was the last fluent speaker of the Otoe Missouri language. I probably botched that up. Otoe Missouri language. And he did much to preserve and pass along his knowledge and history and traditions of the language. He's a subject of a doctoral dissertation, and he actually has its own Wikipedia entry. At the ceremonial dance circle, there were colorful performances of authentic Native American dances, and often they would get kids to come up on the stage and participate. In 1956, the Indian village moved to the location that it would occupy until 1971. To reach the Indian village, guests walked through a tunnel to a distant dead corner of the park. Now, aside from some enhancements in 1962, the Indian village really did not change over the course of 16 years. In 1972, the brand new land bear country, which is now critter country, replaced Indian village. And that tunnel became an open air walkway and the Indian war canoes became Davy Crockett's explorer canoes. Um, the Indian trading post kept its name and theme until 1989 when it became the Briar Patch due to the proximity to Splash Mountain. 
which is a whole different story. There continued to be American Indian villages along the rivers of America, but those were only tableaus with, you know, animatronic Indians waving high or telling stories and, and kids fishing, things like that. However, you can only see those from the uh, Mark Twain or the Columbia sailing ship or occasionally on a train that passing by an Indian chief who's waving high at you. Now, by the norms of, you know, the mid 20th century, Disneyland's Indian village was authentic and respectful. Interpretive signs described how parts of the village represented different Indian nations and cultures and how the structures would have been used. The Native American cast members were encouraged to share their cultures with park guests, and the ceremonial dances and craft demonstrations were actually genuine. There were also elements that would not pass muster today. The restrooms were labeled Braves and Squaws. Ouch. Uh, those terms are obviously now considered offensive, and the term Indian chief is now controversial. Take that, Kansas City. Now, setting out an Indian war canoe as a war party uh, probably sounded way better in 1956 than it does today. So all in all, it was a respectful area, but time and the land needed for expansion uh, did away with the Indian village. Trust me, that irony is not lost on me. The last stop on the tour for this episode is over in Adventureland. Now, Adventureland really hasn't changed that much over the years. The Jungle Cruise uh, still is the Jungle Cruise. Nothing much has changed. However, initially, the Jungle Cruise, Walt wanted to have live animals there. Um, his advisors convinced him that that probably was not a really great idea in terms of cost and the Southern California weather. So that was scrapped for animatronic animals. The original intent of the ride was to provide a realistic and uh, a believable voyage through the world's jungles. There was no jokes, and the spiel by the boat operators, you know, sounded more like a narration of a documentary. So why is it a pun-filled ride now? Well, according to the story, in 1962, after the park was closed, one of the boat operators was taking the, uh, a training lesson or whatever through the rivers of the jungle there, and they started making jokes about the different animals and things like that. Park management overheard this, and they thought it was actually a pretty decent idea. And from that point on, you can't go in the Jungle River without uh, hearing the backside of water. Just down the walkway a bit is another attraction that is still in the same place, but it got a makeover and a new name, and that's the Swiss Family Treehouse. Now, that opened in Disneyland in November of 1962, about two years after the 1960 release of Walt Disney's adventure movie, Swiss Family Robinson. After Walt provided details about the construction of the uh, faux 70-foot-tall fig tree, most of the designers at Disney Enterprises thought the treehouse would be a huge waste of time and money. They thought no one would climb all the way to the top and then only have to negotiate their way back down the tree. <coughs> Wrong again. Guests enjoyed Disneyland's Swiss Family Treehouse for more than 36 years. Now, although the walkthrough uh, attraction required a C ticket when it opened in 1962, it was demoted to a B ticket in 1966. Ouch. In early 1999, Disneyland evicted the Swiss family from their treehouse to make room for Tarzan. Ouch again. The giant artificial tree received a massive makeover, including thousands of replacement of the vinyl leaves and a new suspension bridge entrance from the neighboring tree. 
In June of 1999, Tarzan's Treehouse began welcoming the guests just as Disneyland's animated Tarzan premiered in movie theaters. Now, don't feel bad for the evicted Swiss family. You can visit them over in uh, Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom, where it's one of the park's original attractions that opened on October 1st, 1971. Looking at the clock on the wall, it has been uh, 20 minutes and 17 seconds. Uh-oh, I'm over again. I thought I could squeeze in a little bit of Fantasyland, but nope, that's going to have to wait till uh, part three. Next week, I will uh, talk about what happened in Fantasyland and maybe, just maybe, I squeeze in part of Tomorrowland. Uh, that's it. Thank you very much for listening. I know I've gone over my 20 minutes, this time by about a minute. Um, I apologize. Again, I, I will make this all up to you later on. So next week, we are definitely going to hit Fantasyland. And man, if there's a little bit of time, I can get started on Tomorrowland because Tomorrowland has the biggest amount of changes. And that's going to go on forever. So thank you very much for listening, everybody. I appreciate it. This has been 21 minutes and 8 seconds. You'll never get back. Bye-bye, everybody. Hi, it's me again, Doug. I want to take up a couple more seconds of your time just to remind you, if you want to stay informed of when uh, the next podcast is posted, all you need to do is sign up at uh, on that Instagram machine. It's at uh, 20MYNGB. 20MYNGB. And that means 20 minutes you'll never get back. Uh, if you sign up there, you'll uh, always see when the next podcast is uploaded. And if you want to leave some comments, by all means, please do go to the uh, website at 20minutespodcast.com. So it's 20minutespodcast.com. And uh, you can uh, leave your comments there. It also tells you how you can be an announcer for the show. So take take a look at those two things if you like and stay informed. And I'll, as always, thank you very much for listening to uh, 20 Minutes. You'll never get back. Bye-bye. <laughs>